In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You are advised that any view expressed by the host or their guest are not necessarily the views of the owners or management of Toginet Radio, Togi Entertainment, or the Owners Group, Inc. us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper to the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsink. And with me is not Richard. He is, seems like he's chasing ghosts again. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I he's do have a... Good per- fast, right? <laughs> what was that? Well, this is my very special host. Uh, now you just threw me all off. I'm sorry. <laughs> My co-host for the evening or afternoon, depending on what side of the pond you're on, is the lovely Laura Worcester. She is the NETPG's uh, photographer and also a uh, medium uh, psychic or whatever, and uh, also the uh, host of uh, Walking the Veil. <laughs> Walking the Path with Don and Laura. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one, yeah. On another station. <laughs> yes, and, and that's that's actually on Sunday night at uh, what time? 9 p.m. Eastern. On Archive Radio. Achieve Radio. <laughs> I was so close. <laughs> so anyways, we have a great show for you tonight. We have uh, Doctor. I found out he was a doctor. I didn't realize that. So bad for me. Uh, Robert Lomas, who knows everything there is to know about the Freemasons. Uh, he's written several books about them, and mm-hmm. he's got some interesting uh, thoughts, I guess we would say. But I do want to mention one thing before we bring him on, and that is a special event we'll be doing on December 22nd at the Circles of Wisdom in Andover. It's a, Massachusetts, yeah. Right. It's a metaphor physical bookstore and a whole lot more. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and we will be broadcasting live there with uh, angel expert, America's favorite angel expert, Elizabeth Foley. Uh, we will also have the upcoming uh, forecast in astrology by astrologer Dorothy Anna Morgan. And the Dorothy Anona Morgan. <laughs> that's, that's, well, you my translator, is that what this is? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and also joining us will be the lovely Laura Lester, right? Yes. It's a Wednesday be, night, December 22nd. Right. This will be a great event. Uh, Circles of Wisdom will be given, I guess, 20% off on items at the store purchase at that time. Uh, we will be giving out gifts and stuff, and we'll be collecting warm socks for the homeless, which was a, a big, big deal for my mom. My mom passed away about oh, two 
months ago. Mm-hmm. And one of the things she was always involved in was getting socks for the homeless. So I thought that would be kind of a, a mm-hmm. neat thing to do because, uh, yeah. well, let's face it, you're out in the street in, in New England, it gets freaking cold. Absolutely. Yeah, if you don't have some clean, warm socks, you're in trouble. Exactly. Even if you're in a homeless shelter in the, at nighttime and you go out in the daytime, you still, uh, uh, you know, need something. So we will be collecting yeah. those, and, and those who bring it in will, will be internet who are drawing to win some gifts as well. So it's going to be a neater mm-hmm. event. Um, yeah, so. that's, that's an awesome way to honor your mother. I mean, that's, that's just really nice, you know, yeah. to, take, to take something that was close to her heart and and carry it on, you know. It's yeah, nice. well, if I don't, she's going to come back to haunt me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Along with a whole bunch of other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stand in line. <laughs> but anyways, I don't want to hold, I guess, up much longer. We have an episode of Beyond Desire, so let's play that, and then we'll bring on uh, Robert, Dr. Robert Lomas. Florida's female serial killer. Eileen Warnos had a textbook serial killer childhood. Her father died in prison, and her 15-year-old mother abandoned her to her grandparents when she was just an infant. Warnos had a baby herself at the age of 14. When her grandmother passed away and her hard-drinking grandfather started beating her and her brother, she left home, taking to the road and supporting herself as a prostitute. Warnos collected arrests for crimes such as driving drunk, assault, and passing bad checks, and she was known under a variety of different aliases. Her rough-and-tumble life was briefly brightened when she met Taria Moore, a hotel maid at a gay bar in Daytona, Florida. The couple moved in together, and Warnos supported them by turning tricks. Things started to fall apart in the late 1980s when Moore's alcohol addiction got the best of her, and Warnos met Richard Mallory, a trash-talking ex-con man who picked her up off the highway. According to Warnos, she was sitting in Mallory's car, listening to him rant about women and rape and killing, and she snapped, pulling out the 22 caliber gun she kept in her purse and shooting him three times. His body was found decomposing days later off the side of the highway. After that incident, the bodies of several more men began cropping up around the same area. Meanwhile, Warnos started bringing home extravagant trinkets and more pretended not to wonder why her partner could suddenly pay the rent again. The jig was finally up in June 1990 when Warnos and Moore were found driving the car of a man who went missing days earlier. Florida police chased the women for several days and finally apprehended Warnos in a bar. She was convicted of six counts of murder and sentenced to death, which she did by lethal injection in 2002. Another terrifying tale from Barla Ventura's Book of the Bazaar, available now wherever books are sold. Careful. I guess that was terrifying. <laughs> What's that? I guess that was terrifying. Yeah, that would be very terrifying. <laughs> so, so when they said she turned tricks, does that mean she was a magician? Cue up the uh, cricket noises, please. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, without further ado, let's bring on somebody who makes a lot more sense than me, Dr. Robert Lewis. Good evening, Rob. Good evening. Sorry to put you through all that. <laughs> <laughs> We're part of the uh, UK. You from? Uh, can we call you Robert, or is that fine? 
Call me Robert, yes. Okay, Robert. What, what part of the UK are you from? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm at Bradford University, and I'm actually in the Pennine Hills at the moment. And it's a, it's a clear, frosty evening here. Uh, frosty, that means winter's on its way. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, for those who don't know Robert, he's written several books on the, uh, the Freemasons and a lot of other things, too. And uh, he also has some interesting... Uh, co-authors as well, but we'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, the interesting thing, why why were you so interested in the Freemasons? I, I know there's so much controversy about them and the Knights Templar and uh, that whole deal with the uh, uh, Da Vinci files and all that. Well, you're probably not going to believe this, but I was actually introduced to uh, Freemasonry by a ladies' Freemasonry lodge. When I was uh, now but a young lad, I uh, I met a lady whose daughter I uh, I fell in love with and married, and she was a senior lady Freemason. So uh, as a boy, I got taken to a gentleman's nights at the Lodge of the Eastgate in Chester, and I was interested in the sort of things they did. So when I got a little bit older, I decided to find out a bit more for myself. So I joined the, the male Freemasons about 25 years ago, and it was seriously weird, much weirder <laughs> than, than I expected. <laughs> so, and as a physicist, I, uh, I, I was interested in, uh, in its background, because one thing I did know about it was that a lot of, uh, of early scientists had been inspired by Freemasonry. The, the, the Royal Society in England, which was the first experimental society to be set up, was uh, basically founded by Freemasons. And over in the States there, Ben Franklin was also a Freemason. And of course, you all know what he did in terms of the study of electricity. Mm-hmm. So it had inspired a lot of scientists, and I began to wonder why. But nobody would tell me. I mean, it is quite a bit out of your field, but yet, I mean, you pick probably the most controversial field, I, I guess you would say, a subject, uh, you know, because you have everything from the, uh, you know, the concept of the Luminari uh, who are ruling the world to the uh, Knights Templar to, you know, every uh, person of importance is a Freemason and all the... Uh, the cigarette rights to go on. I mean, it, there's so much controversy over it. And, uh, you know, it, it's so strange that you would go be from a physicist. By the way, I, I, I do want to mention this. Someone actually told me that you were the inspiration for the Da Vinci Code character. Uh, yes. Wow. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> uh, it was, uh, if, you, if you read the, uh, the climax of the, uh, of the Da Vinci Code, you'll find it's based on a book I wrote with Chris Knight called The Hiram Key. And uh, when Dan was sued for plagiarism over here in the UK, he actually said that he'd, uh, that he'd been inspired by the Hiram Key and that he'd based the characters on people he admired. So, <laughs> unfortunately, Mike Bajant, who sued him, got to be the, got to be the, uh, the, uh, the evil one, Lee Teberg. Unfortunately, I got to be the hero. Does me, does me a lot of str- gives me a lot of street, street cred with my students. <laughs> Robert, um, a lot of you know, what most people know about Freemasonry, they know from popular books and movies like The 
the Da Vinci Code and um, National Treasure and, and things like that. Do you think that these books and movies have done justice for the subject of Freemasonry? I think they've raised a lot of interest in it, and mm -hmm. particularly Dan's latest book, The Lost Symbol, is actually based on one of the most important symbols of Freemasonry. Uh, but I think unless you are a Freemason, you don't really know what it's about. Mm -hmm. And one th it took me a few years to discover it, but it is, act it is actually a path of spiritual training. It's not a sort of back-scratching club. And it's got, a, it's got two histories. It's got a mundane history of how it started uh, back in Aberdeen in 1483, and uh, then spread throughout basically spread from Scotland into England, spread from England into, into North America, spread into Europe, and basically spread around the world. And the reason it spread is that it, it, it teaches you to understand symbols. And as you probably know, the most powerful means of, an, of analyzing almost anything in the world are symbols. So if you look at the people who discovered equations and the people who discovered algebra, the people who discovered calculus, they were all Freemasons. And they were inspired by the symbolic teaching that you get in Freemasonry. So Freemasonry is quite an interesting occupation for a physicist because it teaches you, it teaches you to access this, this world, mysterious world of symbols. The interesting thing is, is the first time I was ever, I mean, I've always been intrigued by Freemasonry and also the Knight Templars, and I always mention those two together, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, well, I, am a, I am a Knight Templar, so I can tell you about that as well if you want. Oh, sweet. Uh, but the, the first thing, uh, the first time I was ever exposed to it is I did, a, a par we are a paranormal investigating group as well as a radio host band, and we... Uh, were asked by the Masons to investigate uh, their lodge in North Adams called the Hooten Mansion, and that was the first time I was ever in a lodge. And, uh, you know, I was quite uh, taken back by all the symbolism. You're right, all the symbolism just in the lodge itself, uh, you know, with the lights and the... the um, the, the pillars and the black and white pavement. Exactly. And the square and compasses. Yes, yes, yes. So, and the, I strange mean, apr the strange aprons, aprons we wear as well. Exactly. But the, the, the interesting thing about this is, is it really as diabolical as, as people believe it is? I mean, you know, you, we're talking about two different extremes, of course, but those who believe in the Luminari and, the, and Freemasonry as diabolical, is, it, is there any no. hint to that I, at all? I'm, afra I'm afraid that, that's, a, that's a total myth. It's, it's actually been a, a tremendously powerful force for good over the last few hundred years. If you look, if you look at, the, at the things it's inspired, it inspired the development of mathematics, it inspired the development of experimental science, it inspired the development of, uh, of democracy, it inspired the founding of the United States, because don't forget George Washington was a Freemason, and that's, of course, why you, you see President Obama making a Masonic sign when, uh, when he salutes the flag, because that's what George Washington did. So you've had, a, you've had an awful lot of influence for good in America from Freemasons, and we've had it around the world. It had an effect on the English Civil War and resulted in us having a, 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 a constitutional monarchy. Oliver Cromwell was influenced by Freemasonry. 
and one of the the one of the very important things it teaches is that all that all men, in fact all people, because there's women's Freemasonry as well, are equal, and they're all all of equal value, and the only real way to gain authority over people who are all of equal value is to be elected. And those are very important basic principles that weren't particularly common when Freemasonry started back in the 1400s. Okay. Now, there's so much about the symbolism, once again, and almost it, to become like a, a uh, what's the word, uh, the Grand Poupon, whatever, the, I forget the name of it, uh, you, you really have to memorize quite a bit. It, oh, yes. It, 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 is that the thing? I mean... It, is that part of the uh, intrigue? Is, is why isn't it just you know, like you know, why do we have to memorize things? Why is everything so hush hush? I mean, every every so often on the History Channel in the United States or History International, they come up with a program showing Washington D.C. how it's laid out in the the star and each the dollar bill and all the symbols that are Freemason and it's all part of the. the I mean. Is, should there be more transparency in the, in the Freemasons? Well, actually, with your book, it, it has become <laughs> quite a bit. But uh, should there be more uh, transparency in Freemasons? I think there should be, and in fact, over the last over the last twenty years, it's become much more open. But if you go if you go back to before the uh, the Second World War, Freemasonry used to be an awful lot more open than it was. It became it. It basically went underground during the second during the Second World War, because if you look back, Adolf Hitler didn't just imprison and kill Jews; he imprisoned and killed Freemasons as well. So, it became a little bit more secretive and a little bit more fe fearful. But I think it's uh, it's coming out into the open again. It's always been a spiritual training path. It's always taught about symbolism. It's always taught about equality, but it's a, it, the case is that it, it teaches you in a very strange way. It teaches you by exposing you to rituals that you have to memorize, and whilst you recite this, this wonderful mystical poetry, virtually, you are exposed to symbols. So you're shown things like tracing boards, you're, you're shown things like pedestals and pillars, and... Uh, very, very, there's a whole range of different symbols, and each symbol has a meaning, and the ritual explains the meaning. So effectively, to understand the symbol, the symbol speaks to you at a level which is much, much deeper than words. They have emotional effects on you. In fact, some of the symbols that we use within the lodge, particularly the, the what's called the tessellated border, which is a series of diamond shapes that are put around the outside of the temple, those date back to the very beginnings of humans making symbols, and you find those symbols being carved in the earliest known symbols that have ever been found, 70,000 years ago in Blumbus Cave in South Africa. And those symbols have actually had an influence on us as a, as a, as a species for almost as long as we've been thinking. So. Symbols seem to allow us to access a way of thinking about the power that governs the universe that nothing else allows us to do. And we've basically got three types of symbols. We've got the emotional symbols of the sort that appear in Freemasonry. 
you've got the mathematical symbols that grew out of those, and you've also got the growth of symbols which allow us to speak across time and space, and those are the symbols of writing. And all these have grown out of the ideas of these these basic emotional symbols that the, that humans discovered about 70,000 years ago. And the operative masons who, who formed Freemasonry worked on churches and they carved these symbols into churches and they, they saw the effect that they had on people and they decided to study them. So effectively you've got 500 years of concentrated study of symbols wrapped up in Freemasonry. That's amazing. I mean, but a lot of people fail to realize the importance of symbols. I mean, I mean, you look at the cross for the Christians and the swastika for the Germans during the World War, and the, each each one of those, the Star of David for for the Jews. I mean, symbols are an extremely important part of our lives in yes, in, in so, every day so, so. as well. Symbols have a, symbols have an emotional effect on us. One thing I've been doing with my with my students over the years, I get I get a lot of international students, so I basically get students from all around the world. And uh, what I've been doing with them is I've been showing them symbols, and I've been measuring their galvanic skin response. You know how a lie detector works? It measures whether you're sweating and whether your vocal cords go tense and whether your breathing speeds up. Well, I use a a, a thing like that to measure emotional response, and I've been doing it with my students for many years. And what I discovered is that these ancient symbols, which date back thousands and thousands of years and which are used in Freemasonry today have a powerful emotional effect on people. You show them them and they respond emotionally. And when I followed up on that, because because you don't know whether it's whether it's fear or whether it's uh, it's uh, happiness. And the thing about the symbols which are at the centre of a lot of Freemasonry is they're symbols which actually have a very pleasant effect on people. People like them. They like being around them. They like seeing them. They make them feel comfortable. And so you find that those, those symbols are displayed very frequently in a lot of the, uh, of the republics and democracies. So if you, if you look at the, early, at the early statements of the French Republic, which was Masonically inspired, you find that their statement of the rights of man is placed between two pillars. And those two pillars are very important because they effectively say that you that there are two things you should think about. You should think about the divine aspect and you should think about the mundane aspect. You've got to be able to manipulate the the power of human force, such as you get in a king, and you've also got to be able to consider about the the divine force and the two pillars say that you should keep these things in balance. You don't want, you don't want to become a, a humanistic, atheistic tyrant, and you don't want to become a, a religious fundamentalist. You want to balance between the two. And that's basically what the symbols say. Hi. Laura, you have a question? Oh, no. Okay. I just wanted to, um, to mention if anybody wanted to see um, Robert's website, um, robertlomas.com, it's L-O-M-A-S. Um, lots of information about his books and everything, and just want to let everybody know if they wanted to find out more information about him. Right. 
Now, yeah, symbols are, are so important. Not only that, I mean, if you even go back to the colors, I mean, for instance, why do countries have flags, for instance? It, it's a symbol. Uh, uh, it, there are so many other things just in ordinary life. I mean, for instance, the shape of a, a stop sign, it's a symbol that means something to us. So our yeah. lives are actually run by symbols. We respond to symbols very, very powerfully. And if you think of one of the most powerful symbols of, an, of analysis that you ever see is the equal sign. You know that if you write down equations and set two things equal, you can actually work out very fundamental things about the laws of nature. For instance, if you write down E equals MC squared, it tells you that the energy that's available within an item of matter is proportional to the square of the speed of light. And if you think about it, why on earth should that be? It's a very, very strange thing. Hmm. But the man who discovered the theory of equations was a, a man called John Wallace. And he was a Freemason. He was a founder of the Royal Society. He wrote the first book on equations called The Theory of Algebra. And where he got that symbol, the equal sign, he took the Masonic symbol of the two parallel pillars and he rotated it through an angle of 90 degrees or the fourth part of the circle, which a Mason calls a square, and created the equal sign. And everybody uses the equal sign. You must have, you must have done Remember your maths from school. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a mason of the oldest Masonic preceptory in the world, St. George of Boyne in, in Aberdeen. And okay. it only, unfortunately, it only dates back to 1798. So, Masonic Freemasonry is actually older than the original Knights Templar, sorry, Mas Masonic Knights Templarism is actually older than the, uh, the original Knights Templar. It's lasted longer, but it's not directly linked. <coughs> it's, uh, there is a big gap. The, the Knights Templar were basically wiped out in 1301 and driven under, uh, sorry, 1307 and driven underground. Correct. The Masonic Knight Templar actually appeared around about towards the end of the, um, after the English Civil War, when the Catholic kings of England were driven out. James II of England was actually driven out, and he was replaced by a German king, the Hanoverians, and the followers of James were called the Jacobites. So the Masonic Knights Templar and the Knights Templars that exist today were actually created as a support organization for this king in exile. And he was made the, uh, the honorary Grand Master of the Order, so it all grew out of that. So it's, it's actually... Uh, not really the the real knights the original knights templar though because they disappeared because they'd been considered heretics because all their treasure had been uh, had been seized by the king of france effectively were a blank slate anybody can write legends on them and they've been a very very fruitful source of legend over over a long period of time for instance they became uh, Wolfra, uh, they were created guardians of the grail in myth. Exactly, and I know you have a book on the grail, I believe. Yeah. So yeah. 
So, but again, that, this is this is one. This is again part of the mythical history. So, there is a there is a practical history of where it's come from, but Freemasonry has also created for itself a mythical history. So, the Masonic Knights Templar do claim to be descended from the. Doctor, I'm going to have to ask you to hold that thought because we have to take a break right now. That's the music, and we're going to get cut off. So, you are listening to Ghost Chronicles International. We'll be right back after the following messages on TojiNet. Pararex, Ghost Channel, and beyond. Welcome to TogiNet, radio with a cutting edge. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly kooky, the Pararex family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Ferris family. They're strange, deranged, unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew, it's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Ferris family. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for you to be a rock star. Get ready to rock with Rock Talk and Craig Deswalt and learn how to achieve rock star status in your industry every Tuesday afternoon at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. Craig Deswalt is the creator of the Rock Star System for Success. Craig will share easy tips and strategies on how entrepreneurs and businesses can use outside-the-box marketing strategies to stand out from the competition. Each high-energy show will feature interviews with celebrity rock stars as well as business rock stars. For more on Craig, the show, and the rock star marketing boot camps, check out the website, CraigDuswalt.com, so you can learn how to be perceived as an expert and celebrity in your field, so more people can be you to buy your services and products. Then, get ready to be a rock star with Rock Talk and Craig Duswalt. Tuesday afternoons at 2, 1 Central on Druggynet.com. To Ghost Chronicles International with Brian Kolick and Laura Worcester. And our very, very, very special guest is Dr. Robert Lomas. And if you have any questions for us, by the way, you can join us in the Tojinet or the Parax chat room or call in at 877-864-4869, 877-864-4869. And before the break, which I do apologize for the cutting you <laughs> off like that, we were talking a little bit about the Knight Templar. And uh, so why don't we continue with that? Yes, I was telling you a bit about the Masonic Knight, the Masonic Knights Templar. <laughs> and uh, they basically are an order that was created as a support mechanism for the Jacobites. Uh, this, during England had a couple or a very turbulent period in the 1700s, and it was a period when they changed kings. We, uh, we, we, we flipped between being a Protestant nation and being a Catholic nation. Oh, yeah. And uh, eventually, the, the last Catholic king of England was James II, and he was driven out. But he'd been very much supported by the, by the Scottish Freemasons. So, the, a, a new Grand Lodge was created in London, which basically said, we don't know where we've come from. 
and it was started in 1717, which was two years after the 1715 Jacobite Rising. So it was very dangerous to be a Freemason then. You'd get hung, drawn and quartered if you admitted to it. So they, they covered their tracks and said, we don't know where we've come from. We, did, we don't, didn't really start in Scotland. We're a mystery. But there were still a lot of supporters hanging around for James II. So they created an, the, order, the Order of Masonic Knights Templars. And they, they, they made their, their leader the King of Scots. And they created this wonderful myth that had been around for a while. That had been talked about, but nobody really proved. That it was a Templar battle force that intervened at the Battle of Bannockburn. And so King Robert the Bruce created a special order for the, uh, the Knights Templars within right. Freemasonry. And that that order then became the, uh, the Masonic Knights Templar. And uh, it also had a, a group called the, the Royal Order of Scotland. And they kept an empty chair for the King of Scots, who was their grandmaster, in, uh, their, their official grandmaster. But of course, the King of Scots at that time was James II. So it gave them a front to all, in order to meet, to, to plot to overthrow the government. So the, the, the Masonic Knights Temple are the remnant of that order. And they created all sorts of rituals based around the Templars. Uh, they also have a ritual called the Knights of Malta. And yes, I am a Knight of Malta as well. And um, the, the rituals tell a different set of stories. Because what Freemasonry has done over the years, it created all these wonderful symbols. And the symbols date back to the very beginning of the order. The Lodge of Aberdeen put them down on, a, on a something called a tracing board or a floor cloth. And it has seven mystical steps which are described by the symbols. And each one of these is a picture of one of the seven steps. And that cloth, uh, which was laid on the floor so that it could be roll, unrolled, so you saw the step that you were taking part in the ritual, that step, was, that was on the Kirkwall scroll. And that was created by the Lodge of Aberdeen in uh, round about 1480. Now, since then, what Freemasonry has done is created a series of rituals in order to tell the story of those symbols and explain them to people. So, the rituals that you learn, each one takes you through to a different aspect of yourself. So, for instance, the first degree gets you to confront your fear and gets you to learn to trust. The second degree encourages you to develop your mind and your intellect and to study the hidden mysteries of nature and of science. The third degree gets you to face up to the fact that you're going to have to die. And so you attend your own funeral and then return so that you live your life, make the most of the life that you've got on earth. And the Knights Templar is a Christian order, so it teaches you the, ba the, the basic nature of divinity. And as a physicist, I find the symbol of, the, of divinity that the, uh, the Knights Templar use quite fascinating, because that symbol is an equilateral triangle, a delta it's called. And if you think about it, from a physicist, there are th th if the governing principle of the universe is the controller of the laws of physics, which is one way of defining the great architect, then there are three aspects to that great architect. There is the very, very small, 
the mystery of the quantum, how things can be in two places at once, how they can disappear in one place and appear somewhere else. And that's the Holy Spirit on one side of the triangle. You've got the Newtonian physics, the physics of, of normal-sized people, and that, if you like, uh, as a Christian, that is, that is, uh, is God, the, God the Son, the man-sized God. And then you've got the God of the very large, the God, the God of relativity and the vast expanses of the universe. So there are three ways of looking at reality for a, for a physicist. There's the quantum, there's the, the human-sized Newtonian, and there is the very, very large and relativistic. And each of them focus onto this mysterious center where the great architect is, the, the, the order that governs the universe. So the, the Templar rituals actually take you to that, uh, to that beautiful symbol of the delta and says there are three ways to look at reality. And none of them are, none of them are definitely right, but they all come together. That's fascinating. Um, Robert, I'm going to take this opportunity to try to um, solve a, a mystery from my childhood, if you don't mind. <laughs> I, used to live, I used to live in an old Victorian just outside of Boston and uh, for the first 10 years of my life. And on the second floor of, um, this, of this house, that we had hardwood floors, in the largest room of the second floor, there was the square and compass symbol engraved into the floor. Now, what can I figure from that? Is it possibly someone who, who built the house was a Freemason or the person that lived there was a Freemason? Is, or does it mean anything in particular when someone actually has that symbol carved into the floor? It, on the floor? Mm -hmm. it, means it's been, it means that room's been used as a Masonic temple at some time. Oh, cool. Because that's, that symbol is the combination of the two symbols. Uh -huh. The compasses are for you to find the, the mysterious center, which is the is the point where all the power emanates from the mm -hmm. the 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 great it's it's either called the great architect or the grand geometrician or even even the great guardian of the law of the laws of physics if you want to put it in in common to it's what makes the universe what it is it's what makes the quantum coupling coefficient uh, 137.03879 which is a totally arbitrary number we, we don't have any theory why it should be, but we can measure it very, very accurately. Mm -hmm. That was decided by the power that set up these laws, and that power is described by the square and compasses. The square gives you a measure of uprightness and a measure of, of correctness and mor morality, and the compasses tell you to, to make sure that you keep your power within bounds and you don't try and you, you treat everybody as equal. So if you have a square and compass, in, in every lodge, the square and compasses will be displayed and it's often carved into either the wall or the floor or sometimes in more than one. So in that house, it's probably been used as a Masonic temple at some time. Wow, that explains a lot. Wow, thanks for clearing that up. Now, during the break, we were actually talking a little bit about uh, uh, the Masonic fleet and how I always thought that they had escaped with the bulk of the treasure. And, of course, uh, the whole theory, one is that they went to Scotland, and it, uh, including the treasure was the Holy Grail, and, and that they even came to America. Of course, uh, we had, uh, I believe it was, was it Simon, I forget the, the knight's name, but uh, we have the... Yes. We have the night in uh, Westford here that's been carved in the rocks. And the Westford, the Westford night, yes. Yes, that's yes, real. Yes. That's real. 
and it was carved by somebody who came from Scotland. But it wasn't, I'm afraid they weren't Knights Templar. The, the group, the, the people who, who fed into creating Freemasonry were a group called the Sinclairs. And they, they were the people, the earls who built Roslyn Chapel. Right. And the Masons who founded Freemasonry were made redundant from built, working on Roslyn Chapel. Roslyn Chapel was actually built by an architect called Gilbert Hay. And he was a rather Machiavellian character who wrote books on how to govern people. And he was very, very into the use of symbols to manipulate people's views. Now, William Sinclair, the, four, the, the 12th Earl of Roslyn, who built Roslyn, he was the 3rd Earl of Orkney. His grandfather, called Prince Henry, was a Viking pirate. And he was trading with Greenland, where the Vikings had two colonies, and with Iceland, and with Newfoundland, where the Iceland, where the, um, where the, um, the Vikings also had a colony. So right. he was effectively a pirate. And that's how you've got carvings like things like aloe cactus and maize carved into Roslyn, because they were actually trading with North America. But it wasn't the Templars. The Templars didn't. The the Templar treasure was all taken by King Philip. King Philip was bankrupt, and he was deeply in debt to the Templars. And when Jacques de Molay arrived at the Paris Temple with twenty six horse loads of silver, that all went into the king's treasury. That's why the Templars were charged with heresy, because in those days, if a king charged an order with heresy, then all their goods and chattels were forfeit to the crown. So by charging them with heresy. By torturing Jacques de Molay so that he confessed within 24 hours of being captured uh, to being a heretic, all the orders, fine, all the orders money was uh, forfeit to the King of France. And he'd already done something similar a few years earlier. He'd, uh, he'd actually driven the Jews out of France and seized all their goods as well. So he had a track record for doing this, and he did it to the Templars. So... The Templars didn't have a fleet. They hired merchant vessels as they needed them. They had about six small fighting vessels, which weren't really capable of sailing the Atlantic. Uh, there was a. I've heard the story that they went to uh, that they went to the to uh, the Isle of Mull, and that from there they went to Aberdeen. That's the founding right. myth of my my own preceptory. But unfortunately, it's not true. The graves that were found there are Viking graves, because the Vikings also used to carve their sword onto the grave. So, certainly, there was a link indirectly with the Knights Templar, because the last Templar preceptory of Scotland at the time the Templars were disbanded was William Sinclair, the fifth Earl of Roslyn, who was sort of seven earlier than the, the man who built built Roslyn Chapel. But Roslyn Chapel was basically built as an alternative focus to the Abbey of the Holy Rood, which was controlled by the Stuarts. And William Sinclair made a bid for the Crown of Scotland, and it failed, and his estates were, were disbanded. I'm sure you've heard the story how he passed on the, the partly finished chapel to his, to his son Oliver to complete. That, 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 that actually is one of the questions we just received in the chat room. You must be psychic as well as the Knight Templar. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Mason. We have, <laughs> the, we have the second sight and the Mason word. Oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> and the, um, well, 
Oliver was was um, was just about coming up to two when he took over the estates of Roslyn. He was forced into it. They were broken up. Part of this, the Orkney estates went to the Crown of Scotland. The Lanarkshire estates went to another branch of the family. The Sinclair estates, the Sinclairs had more land than the Stuarts did, and it was broken up between all his all his seven children. And uh, the, he was he was effectively uh, put under house arrest. And the Masons who'd worked on all the wonderful symbolism that is it, that is built into Roslyn which incidentally is the work of Gilbert Hay, who rarely gets credit for it, he, they, uh, they were disbanded. And there was only one place you could get work in, uh, in Scotland at that time, and it was the rebuilding of St. Nicholas's Kirk in Aberdeen. And that's where the first Masonic Lodge was founded, and it's where the first patterns of the symbols were put down, these, these six tracing boards. And we still use six tracing boards today. And that's one of the reasons I wrote that little guidebook for new masons, which takes them through the meaning of the tracing boards. Because the tracing boards are effectively groups of symbols brought together in images, which are an aid to deepen your reflection and meditation. So what you do with those, those images, which are in the little book, The Secret Science of Masonic Initiation, that you, you originally contacted me about, is it tells you how to read those pictures, how to understand them, and it runs through the ritual that you're taught when you're shown those symbols. So effectively, if you meditate on those symbols, you experience an awareness that there is something greater than you in the, in the universe. Yeah, it, it's a very good book. It, it's small, but it's, it's definitely interesting. Uh, we actually have another question about Jacques de la Molay. Jacques de Molay. Yes. And CC in the uh, Parrot chat room asks if was he a figurehead of the Templars, a ruse to protect another person or not? Uh, no, that that's uh, that that also is is another lovely myth. He was the the uh, the leader of the Templars. He wasn't a very bright man. He wasn't very political. Because uh, the King of France was actually trying to to seize the 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 goods of both the Templars and the hospital Hospitallers, who were the other Crusading order, right. and he invited them both to France to to meet with him and discuss the futures of the orders. Uh, Jacques de Molay turned up with uh, with these twenty six horse twenty six pack horses laden with silver. And uh, the head of the the Knights Hospitaller said, I'm awfully busy, I'm protecting Malta, I can't come. And the Hospitaller survived, and of course the uh, the Knights Templar were lost. But you know, the thing you need to remember about the Knights Templar is although they were a formidable fighting force, and effectively uh, an armoured knight was equivalent to a, to a to probably an Abrams tank right. in, in fighting power, but all their fighting knights were out in uh, were out in the uh, in the east. It, all they had in the west were fundraisers. So effectively, there were there were people who ran estates and uh, and ran banking systems for them and collected money. So the the Paris Temple, which was stormed on the morning of Friday the thirteenth of October thirteen o seven, was basically manned by cripples and old fogies. One of them was even a leper, so it wasn't it wasn't particularly difficult to seize it, and of course, if you uh, 
if you actually seize it, and Jack de Malay was what he was in his uh, in his mid sixties, okay. uh, they they broke him very very quickly. They actually they actually nailed him to a door. And if you nail somebody to the door with a couple of nails through the wrist and a couple of nails through the feet, and you you swing the door to and throw and slam it occasionally, they very soon tell you they're a heretic, and that's what they did to him. And he was actually carried in. On the the day on the Saturday morning, he was carried into a special meeting of the University of Paris, where he confessed to being a heretic. He had to be carried in because he couldn't walk, he, and he spent the rest of the time he was imprisoned, uh, protesting that he'd been tortured and that he was really innocent. But nobody listened to him after that, and eventually they burnt him at the stake about five years later. Because having got the confession of heresy out of him, the king could seize all the goods. Yeah, which it was all about to start with. It that was, that was the reason. That was why they'd been challenged. That was exactly what he hoped to achieve. Because don't forget, the king, the king of France, also held the pope a prisoner at that time. Because the pope was a, was held at Avignon, and wasn't in Rome. He the 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 king Philip had been a party of getting uh, Clement elected as pope, and he was actually the king the king's agent. And he was held prisoner in France, so there was nothing he could do to save the Templars. And he may have been a bit annoyed that they, that all the Templars' wealth was taken and all their estates were taken, but there was nothing much he could do about it. So Philip was was quite a um, was quite a, a formidable politician. But interestingly enough, when Jack de Belay was burnt at the stake in um, Five years later, which what would have made it uh, 1312, he cursed uh, he cursed Clement and the, king. the Pope, and he, and he cursed the King, and they both died within six months. So there may be some justice in this world. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing, though, I, and I want to I, I picked up on this that you said you said that all the the knights themselves were in the East fighting, or or were in the East East period, so. And if you took that thesis, then the, the temples were still around after Friday the 13th. In fact, yeah. the, the most formidable yes. force was alive. Yeah, most of, most of them joined the hospital, hospitalers. Okay. And uh, if you if you look if you look through the records, you can see that they were taken in by the by the by the Knights of St John and the Knights of Malta. Uh, they, they were known as the, as the hospitalers. Right. So. That's what happened to their fighting to their fighting knights. They they joined up with the hospitalers. They joined up with the knights uh, the knights of Portugal. They were taken into other orders, and uh, you can see that it's only the knight the only ones who were ever arrested were the ones in France, and they were they weren't particularly men, there weren't many fighting men there. And basically, with the order disbanded, with the, with no chance of it returning, with the Pope under captivity, so there was nobody else to appeal to, the uh, the soldiers were very pragmatic. They just joined the alternative order, and continued and carried on fighting their good fight. Right. So you you actually wrote a trilogy. Uh, the Hiram Key, of course, is one of them, and. Uh, the book we are talking about is the secret science of the Masonic. That, that's a that's a that's a separate that's a separate little guidebook for Freemasons. Right. Uh, one of the things I realised having having written a series of books about Freemasonry is that nobody tells you 
people you can find out about the the mundane history you know where it started and who did what and what where lodges were but nobody tells you the the spiritual teaching of the craft and so the secret science of masonic initiation was a guidebook that i wrote for young masons so that they understand what the heritage of the craft is this wonderful heritage of symbolism and training and, and sensitivity to symbols that actually expands your mind and it does it does tend to make you a better person Freemasonry says it takes good men and makes them better. So it teaches you democracy, it teaches you science, it teaches you goodwill, it teaches you charity. And this this is the basic purpose of the order. The, the interesting thing is, is, why does it get such a bad rap? I mean, the really, I mean, everything I've heard about it, when you really look into the science of it, it, it you know, it's really, a, you know, something to belong to. It's almost, uh, you know, it's Christian. <laughs> I, I think conspiracy theorists uh, like to make conspiracies about things they don't understand. Mm, and Freemasonry quite often has not talked about itself. And I think that's, my view is it's a mistake that we don't talk about the spiritual training path that's, that's always been in, at the centre of Freemasonry. And I think one of the reasons people didn't talk about it was it seems a very weird thing to be looking at. It seems a very odd thing to be interested in. It, it seems almost counterintuitive for scientists to be interested in things like this. But all scientists believe that there is this, this wonderful realm of, of what we call platonic truths. There are things that our soul knows that we cannot prove. Simple things. You can't prove one equals one arithmetically. It's an act of faith. You have to assume it, and then the whole of arithmetic follows from it. You can't prove that there are algorithms that can never be, that will never actually close when you're writing programs for computers. But they do exist, and you can prove them through Turing's theory. So there are certain truths about science that you cannot really, you can never prove, and you make this act of faith about them. And even language breaks down. You cannot use language to analyse everything, because if I make the simple statement, I am a consistent liar, language breaks down. You yep. cannot analyse that statement. If it's true, if it's a lie, I'm not a consistent liar. And if it's not a lie, I, I, I'm not a consistent liar. <laughs> So the language, the language fails. So language fails you, mathematics fail you, and logical reasoning fail you in the limit. And it's in that centre of the limit that the real mystery of what makes the universe work, the, the basic power behind the universe exists. And that's what Freemasonry studies. And it's called the Masonic Quest for Truth. It's interesting because the paranormal, for instance, I'm involved in paranormal, so, uh, you know, people will uh, look at it, well, I'm going to prove the paranormal. It, it's it's not a thing that really can be proved. That's, it's, it's go ahead. It, if, you look into, if you look into the possibilities that can occur in quantum wave function collapse, lots of things are improbable but possible. And my my view is that everything that you study as paranormal is is contained within the laws of quantum physics. They're just very unusual happenings. I don't actually think there is anything paranormal. 
I just think what you're seeing is very, very unusual circumstances. And uh, it's basically what... Um, what Dick Feynman said: If you're not confused by by quantum physics, you don't understand it. <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> but I mean, a, a lot of uh, I mean, for instance, if you go and you take a a particular uh, uh, like what's the word I'm looking for? Like a truth, you believe in a certain truth that, like for instance. Uh, uh, we were talking about dowsing. Let's just make this very simple. And now, yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm happy to talk about dowsing. I'll tell you really? how it works. Right? Would you like me to explain dowsing? I would love to hear about dowsing. Dowsing is dowsing is very is very very straightforward. Water molecules are electrically active. They create 60 gigahertz electrical signals when they move. So if you if you sway your head through a 60 gigahertz electric field coming from the water, then uh, if you've got neurons in your brain that are about 2.5 centimeters long, you will trigger them. So what the, when your rods twitch, what you're actually doing is triggering neuro, amplifying triggering of neurons in your brain, which are sensitive to the 60 gigahertz field. That is the uh, is the water, so you have to train yourself to focus on that part of your brain that feels water, and then you'll feel a particular twitch. That's you responding to this 60 gigahertz field, and you'll also find that that you can get it in ferroelectric effects in stones. So stones can carry a, a ferroelectric charge, which you'll respond to. You can chart. You can uh, you can sense. Uh, moving water, you can sense electricity, you can sense metal pipes uh, as, they're, as they're moving through the... Well, when a metal pipe is in the ground, it's actually move As the Earth rotates, it's moving through the, the, uh, through the, solar, magnetic, through the solar magnetosphere, and that creates the, uh, also a signal. Now, these signals are all very high frequency. They range from 60, 60 gigahertz up to about 75, and those are all within the range that you have neurons in your brain that you can respond to. So when you're learning to ask yourself a question about, is the water here?, you're learning to, to access those neurons, and then you're using the rods to, to amplify the twitch. So there's nothing magic about dowsing. Well, Dr. Uh, well, Robert, uh, this has been really uh, enlightening, and I've really enjoyed it. Uh, you've opened up so many new avenues for me to look at, which is going to be great. But We just scratched the surface today. <laughs> I know, absolutely. It's, it's been a phenomenal... Uh, show. Uh, I want to thank you because we've run out of time. So anyways, I do appreciate you coming on, and once again, your website is? Uh, www.robertlomas.com L-O-M-A-S for Lomas. And you can get uh, autographed books from it, I believe, as well, right? Yes, you can. Okay. So thank you so uh, much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, thank you. Yep, you have a great day. Thank you. Yep, bye now. Good night. Well, that that was amazing. Absolutely. (laughs) I had so many questions, but I just I didn't fit in right when you know the subject we were talking about at the moment. But are you going to have him on again? I hope. I would love to have him on again. He was phenomenal. I mean, the the cool thing about it, I mean, he's a wicked smart guy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I know we're running out of time, but anyways, uh, yeah, Dowsing, Knights Templar was all there. It was great. Anyways. 
Uh, thank you so much for listening, and Laura, thanks for filling in. And thanks for having me on. Okay, till next. Have week. a great week, everybody. Yeah. Good night. God bless. From ghoulies to ghosties, long-legged beasties, things that go. Back.